0: Welcome to Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is Anne Hindry, the CEO of the Nonprofit Association of the Midlands. Hindery talks about growing up in the 70s and wanting to change the world. An aspiration she has since pursued by driving an effective, vibrant, nonprofit sector across the Midwest to the betterment of all of our communities.
1: Everyone benefits from a nonprofit every single day, whether they realize it or not. We really are the third stool of the economy. I think for a lot of people, they think nonprofits take care of other people. I really see it it's nonprofits, it's how we take care of each other.
0: Hendry is the CEO of the Nonprofit Association of the Midlands, which she initially joined in 2008. Hindry has extensive experience in public and non-profit sector program development and management, for which she has received numerous accolades, including being recognized in 2017 as a Nonprofit Administrator of the Year by the American Society for Public Administration. Active in the community, Hendry currently serves on the board of the Metro Area Continuum of Care for the Homeless. And has formerly served on the Omaha branch of the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City and on the board of the National Council of Nonprofits. Hindry is currently co teaching a class on cross sector leadership at the University of Nebraska in Omaha. Hindry received her bachelor's degree from Creighton University and master's degree in public administration from the University of Nebraska at Omaha. And Hindry, welcome to Lives.
1: Thanks for having me here, Stuart.
0: I'm thrilled to begin the conversation where we were just chatting off air, which is about your childhood because you were sharing that you're one of six and that feels like a pretty rambunctious household and, and a pretty potentially mischievous uh, household. So what was your childhood like? What stands out
1: to you? So yeah, being the youngest, I kind of felt, um, I re- remember a lot of hand-me-downs um, when my dad would take a uh, shopping for the three youngest, he would pick out the same outfit in three different sizes, which meant I think I wore a red tank swimming suit for probably eight or nine years of my life because I, it just went went down. I, I remember remember that quite a bit. My, my parents owned their own business. They had a hardware store and then later a mattress factory, so my mom worked a lot. So everybody pitched in and helped. Um, my older sister was probably a better cook than my mom. I know my dad was a better cook than my mom, and she would admit to that. But it was, it was a lot of fun. It was, you know, in the neighborhood, you could kind of, it was one of those things. You could run around at night, stay out, be home before dark, have a lemonade stand. It was, it was really a lot of fun. Went to Catholic school, tried to play sports. I didn't get coordinated until I was later in life, but, you know, always wanted to. The two things that stick out to me, one, my dad's goal, only goal in life, was that all six kids of his would go to college because he didn't. And he was eligible for the GI Bill, which did not make my mom happy. But we all, six kids, went on on to college and helped him fulfill his dream. The other thing that I think was true that started with my mom and my sisters is, I know I stand on the shoulders of others. I mean, I'm old enough to remember, you know, in the 70s, women couldn't get a credit card without permission. I mean, just the sea changes that have happened in my life – and that I continue to be able to stand on the shoulders of others, and I really hope that somebody's standing on mine, that my shoulders are strong enough for that.
0: You mentioned Catholic school. I, I don't know if there was a faith context to your upbringing.
1: Yeah, I was I was raised as a Catholic, and it was interesting. I was the first uh, girl that got permission to actually go on the altar to do a reading, because we would go to Mass once a week at, at my school, and they would nev- not let the girls be altar servers or go up on the altar to read. And I didn't think that was fair. So I asked why, and they're like, well, it's the bishop's decision. So I wrote a letter to the bishop in Kansas City, and I was the first girl to get up there and be able to do a reading on the altar. Do you see
0: those seeds of who you were becoming in your childhood?
1: Oh, in hindsight, definitely. It was interesting because until I came over to the nonprofit world and one of the questions we ask as a, as an icebreaker is tell me about your first nonprofit experience. And so, you know, I had to stop and, and think back. And I can remember as a child, I would go to a Wesley house and I didn't realize till I was an adult that there was Wesley houses all over the country as daycare centers by, I, I think it's the Methodist. We would walk to the library and it was the Carnegie Branch Library. I didn't know that there's over 2000 Carnegie Branch libraries across the country. Not knowing it, I helped start service learning in my high school. Not intentionally. I got kicked out of senior, senior religion, and you had to have four years of religion to, to graduate. And so, they're trying, the nuns are trying to figure out, what are we going to do here? So, they're like, you can go volunteer at the school for disabled. And within about two weeks, there was about 15 of us that that's how we finished out that requirement and never, never made the connection until I was an adult, that oh, that's that is all always about a little pushing back, but also wanting to do something.
0: I also just want to pick up on how you talked about your parents as well, because we'll talk about NAM, the nonprofit association of the Midlands, in a second. But in many ways, NAM is an agency that is committed to supporting other nonprofits. And the reason why I mentioned that is because you talked about your parents having their own business, and you mentioned this mattress factory and and other elements. And, And I'm curious if in their example, you saw and learned something of what it takes to manage an organization, to run a business, to be attentive, not only to what is the purpose of the business, but the operational side of it.
1: It, that's funny, you say that. It wasn't until I'd been at NAM a couple of years and really started when I started, there was no there there. So we had to create financials, create policies, procedures, and you know, over the course of time of developing that and chart of accounts and all those types of things, I was like, this is probably how my mom's day was, you know. And except she used little short pencils and ledgers to do it. And I got Excel. I mean, she would have been on fire if Excel would have been around in her day. But I I think that's it. My mom definitely had the mind for business. And my dad um, never met a stranger. Would talk to people in elevators, usually about his kids. But, you know, just very outgoing guy.
0: I've heard you share in a different context that you grew up in the 70s and you wanted to change the world. Do you, I don't know if you remember no, saying that. I, think oh, I do, okay. I do.
1: I um, do. I've always been interested in changing the world and government and politics. I worked on my first political camp, political campaign in seventh grade for a classmate whose father was running for Congress. Didn't win, but the bug bit me. So I was always involved in in different activities, and so um, continued to do that. Always knew that I wanted to work in government, and so I, I got my master's degree and went to work in local government. So I worked the first half of my career in local and federal government for the Omaha mayor's office for several mayors. And then I uh, worked at the US attorney's office for a number of years because I want to change the world. But then every four years, somebody changes it back. So I was really surprised when I was approached by a local nonprofit and who asked me to come work at the Omaha Community Foundation. And my first response was, do you know what I do? Like I write grants and get people to work and play well together. And it was kind of the flip side of what I ended up doing for them. But I found out in nonprofits, my sustainability level has increased so much more because very seldom in government do programs transfer from administration to administration, or you have to start all over. Um, And in nonprofits, it's easier to find that sustainability. It's much more collaborative it can there's still turf, I mean, I believe that everything's political with a small p. I like to paraphrase Tip O'Neill, people may have to Google him, who used to be Speaker of the House, who said all politics is local, and while I believe that I'll, I'm going to take it a step further. All politics is personal. You really have to get those relationships.
0: This may seem like a redundant question, but I want to ask it anyway, which is why do nonprofits matter?
1: Oh, I could talk about this all day, Stuart. Um, so nonprofits, everyone benefits from a nonprofit every single day, whether they realize it or not. We really are the third stool of the economy. Nonprofits partner with government to offer services in a more nimble, cost-effective manner. We partner with the private sector to offer services to their employees and their families. So it's really the the triad of the economy. Nonprofits have existed since this country was founded. Uh, What, Benjamin Franklin started the first Firefighting Company was nonprofits. Um, I mentioned, you know, Andrew Carnegie and Libraries. They've always been there. It's, it's our freedom of association. That's what creates nonprofits. Um, so they've always existed. I think for a lot of people, they think nonprofits take care of other people. I really see it. It's nonprofits. It's how we take care of each other. You know, there's some typical charities, humane societies, youth service agencies, but there's also art institutions, the Holland Center, you um, if you know people that had a baby, most, ho- uh, most hospitals in Nebraska are nonprofits. So it's really a lot of educational institutions. It's really the breadth and depth of
0: what nonprofits do. So you talked about this triad of nonprofits, for profits, and uh, government or quasi-government entities making up the, the mechanics of our economy. And sometimes we'll hear people suggest that you know nonprofits should be or operate more like for profits. Sometimes we hear that government should be operated more like uh, businesses, too. We rarely hear that in reverse that government or commercial business should operate like nonprofits. I mean, do you have a perspective on why nonprofits operate as they do like nonprofits?
1: I do. I, I think the difference is our bottom line is different. We are a business, we just have that different bottom line. Ours is about service delivery. We don't give our Money back to our shareholders, we invest it in our stakeholders, so in our clients. Um, and, you know, I do get nonprofits should be run more like a business, to which I usually respond, would you prefer Enron or Bear Stearns? Um, because I will put my board of directors, who are unpaid, usually get a good cup of coffee um, against any corporate board who usually are paid quite well.
0: What are some of the challenges today that are facing? Nonprofits, and also what perhaps are some of the opportunities that that exist in
1: sort of this nonprofit landscape? Well, as we all know, the last several years have been very interesting with the pandemic, all the band aids that were ripped off since then that exposed social issues we all need to deal with, and now trying to figure out what does whatever normal is going to look like. So, you know, you hear the expression people had to pivot during the pandemic. I like to think nonprofits, we didn't pivot, we had to pirouette. You know, people's business models were no longer viable. The budget you had in January of 2020 wasn't the one you had in June. We helped our members, um, you know, figure out their cash flow and looking at that. We made the decision at that time, then when it became to our work in public policy, that all nonprofits were NAM members, whether they were paying dues or not. So we really helped get information out on the CARES Act and the American Rescue Plan Act. And we didn't help them apply for the Paycheck Protection Loans, but we told them, Go to a community banker. This is what you need to do. This is what you have conversations with your board. And so I think as we kind of figure out what's new, we're seeing a shift. Um, A lot of nonprofits, now that a lot of the federal money is over or will be over, I I see a couple different things. Those nonprofits that got a lot of federal money and scaled up millions and millions as need be for emergency rental rental and utility assistance or food, and their boards, I hope, are talking about how are you going to right size? How are you going to figure out, can you close that gap? Or what programs are you going to change? On the other end of the spectrums are nonprofits that were failing. Before the federal funds came out, I would get regular calls from members and other nonprofits, more the smaller ones saying, should I take a second mortgage out on my house to make payrolls? Which I'd say, no, you don't own this business. The public owns your nonprofit that changed when the money came out and we're starting to see that they maybe got some cares money or some state money. And now that that's going, I think we're going to see some mergers and acquisitions, which isn't necessarily a bad thing as long as clients get served and it's done mindfully and boards of directors talk to each other. Um, we're going to see some nonprofits go out of business altogether. Just as my favorite pizza place in Midtown closed about halfway through the pandemic. I have recovered and I found another favorite pizza place. So I think we're seeing that funding is going to be different. Um, we're very fortunate in Omaha. I like to say Omaha's a town with big hearts and deep pockets and our philanthropy is different in Omaha than a lot of other cities just by the nature of, you know, what companies are headquartered here. And the way that they stepped forward during the pandemic to make sure that direct assistance programs survived and thrive and now they're right-sizing. Um, We see there's one foundation, the Holland Foundation is sunsetting. We used to get money from them, we're not, which I respect. They made that decision when they were founded after 10 years after Dick's passing, they were going to sunset. I'm curious to see what other changes may be happening. We're also seeing the transfer of wealth that we've been talking about for decades actually happening. So what will it look like in Omaha when large individual donors retire and maybe move to another state? or their children that may be yours or my age, move to a different state? Will all that investment that had been coming to Omaha or Nebraska end up in Minnesota or Arizona? Um, And so I think that will be interesting to watch. At the same time, it's a mixed recovery. You know, we're still seeing an increased need for food. The demand at the food bank is higher today than it was in September of 2020, which that's hard for me to get my head around. Um, emergency rent utility assistance is still out there. I, I find it interesting and a little sad that the only courts that stayed open during the pandemic were eviction and bankruptcy. And so trying to, to figure out how do we deal with that and homeless prevention. It's been challenging for other parts. You know, the arts organizations, some of them are really coming back and some of them are still, you know, things are out of their control. The The issues that impact the other areas of the economy, supply chain, inflation, that all impacts nonprofits as, as well, depending upon your, your line of business. And so we have to figure out, how can I do things differently? How can I maybe get back to mission? Um, I think it was easy for some nonprofits that maybe were designed for one area. Then during the pandemic, they were like, oh, no, but I have to go into food assistance or I have to do this. And it's like, no, you need to focus on your mission and you need to connect them with the others in the community to the, that do that work. So I think I think it's going to be a challenging couple of years, maybe three, five we're fundraising. It's going to take us a while to recover, but it took us 10 years to recover from the Great Recession. This one feels different. I think there's some permanent changes. I don't know what those are, but it's going to be interesting to to see where life takes us. There was a time uh, not too long ago when
0: academics would point to Omaha as having a robust and strong philanthropic environment, whether measured in terms of volunteerism or private or corporate donations into the uh, philanthropic space. So by various measures, Omaha was strong. Is that still true or is our area facing a decline in various measures of strength in our philanthropic environment?
1: I think it is still true, but I think we need to be proactive and be prepared for the changes. You know, the ones that we can't really control is the transfer of wealth. And what when you have, you know, a family that has a donor advice fund at the community foundation and they leave, you know, that money's going to go, what's going to happen there? I think that we're also seeing philanthropy and nonprofits kind of push back. Government tends to ask nonprofits to do more with less. It's not just in Nebraska, but state government pays nonprofits late, they pay us 70 cents on the dollar, they change contracts midstream, and we've put up with that for decades. And it's harder to do that when we can't make ends meet or we have to take out a bridge loan until our state contract comes through. Um and it's a state contract. Maybe it's a grant, but if it's a contract, they've agreed to that. On the flip side, I think that, you know, Omaha and Nebraska is blessed to have such a large philanthropic community. And I worry that governments will expect and want philanthropy to step up and pay for things without even having a conversation. Um, And I think philanthropy wants to be involved in community solutions. That's why they exist. But they should be part of the solutions and not just dictated to, or here's the gap, go fill it.
0: I believe I've heard you express before that something like 1 in 11 people in Nebraska is retained in some way through a nonprofit and i i think that speaks very much to the importance the intrinsic vitality of the nonprofit landscape in Nebraska but how right am i and, and how intertwined is the nonprofit world with you know our overall economic and social well-being
1: Yeah, it is. 1 in 11 Nebraskans work for a 501c3. The national average is 1 in 10. Um, I think nonprofits are misunderstood. You know, we're the invisible sector. You know, people use us every single day and they don't realize it's art, it's education, it's health, it's humane, it's community, humane society, it's community groups. It's the breadth and depth is just enormous. I think it's that. Um, Before the pandemic, we were usually in the top five states for volunteerism. That's changed across the board since the pandemic. Uh, Some organizations are getting their volunteers back. Some aren't, especially those organizations that maybe had elderly volunteers that, you know, aren't comfortable or their lives have moved on and, you know, they're ready to do something else um, and retire perhaps. So that will be interesting to watch to see how that changes. But You know, we have the data. Most nonprofits in Nebraska are small. Budget's under $250,000, $300,000. A lot of them are volunteers, but a lot of them do have employees. They are all over the state. It's the community fabric. I mean, we're what makes life worth living, I think. You know, whether you volunteer for a nonprofit or not. Fontenelle Forest, where you can go for beautiful walks. The beautiful Jean Leahy Mall is, you know, organized part city nonprofit cross-sector collaboration there. There's so many aspects about nonprofits. There's approximately, I would say 3,500 to 4,000, what we think of as traditional nonprofits that have registered with the IRS for that 501c3 tax status. And let me just iterate, nonprofit is really just a tax status. But there's probably closer to 10,000 organizations that have incorporated with the Secretary of State. And Nebraska nonprofits incorporate with the Secretary of State, and then we're Uh, governed, so to speak, regulated by the attorney general's office.
0: What are some misperceptions that people have other than the ones you've already spoken about, about nonprofits? And just to seed this conversation, one that springs to mind is the idea that nonprofits don't pay taxes.
1: That is a great urban myth. Um, While it's true that nonprofits don't pay corporate income tax, the rest varies from state to state. And I think in Nebraska, nonprofits are regulated very little, but taxed very much to other counterparts. So um, with very few exceptions in Nebraska, we pay sales tax. I pay payroll tax. I'm pretty sure my landlord has the property tax figured into my rent. Um, We just don't pay that corporate income tax. And so there's that myth. Another myth is what we call the overhead myth, that nonprofits should have a very low overhead, maybe 10% and the rest should all go to direct services. To one, I don't think anybody asks Union Pacific, what's your overhead? Or do they even track it? But more importantly, there's no data to show that low overhead means improved service. I can remember years ago, I was doing a site visit at a local youth service nonprofit. And one of the donors said, I really want to invest in here, but I don't want to pay for any of the overhead. And my boss very eloquently looked at him and said, that would be great, but you don't want to pay for anybody to feed the baby change the baby's diaper, or put the baby to bed. That's overhead. It varies for different nonprofit, whether you're direct service or not, but it's the operational cost of doing business. We have to figure out how to pay for lights, rent, utility, our staff. I mean, insurance, those types of things. There's this myth that nonprofits shouldn't be paid, that we're all, there's a myth that we're all volunteers, which is so not true. Um, I remember... I was at a national conference years ago, and we had some folks, it was in in D.C., and there were some folks um, talking about the early days of the Affordable Care Act. And and whether no matter how you feel about that, in the first drafts of the bills, nonprofits were not included. And when asked why, the congressional staffer said, well, they're all volunteers. And whenever we go to our national conference, we always take that opportunity to go and visit the Nebraska congressional delegations. And... I remember one of my first visits to a senator's office years ago, nobody's still in office, was, well, well, if I got outside of Omaha or Lincoln, why would I need a nonprofit? So I'm thinking to myself, this is a great teachable moment um, because you still have 4-H clubs. You still have those community gardens. You still have after-school programs, Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, probably an adult daycare or assisted living for your parents. Most of those are nonprofits in our communities. So those are some of the overhead myths. Um, One of the things we really advocate for is that nonprofits should be paid a fair wage. During the beginning stages of the pandemic, we told our members, if you can afford to keep people on the payroll, please do so. For many of them, it got to the point that they couldn't. And by then some of the federal programs kicked in, which was helpful. If you can let your employees work from home for a while, do so. It works for some organizations, some it doesn't. Make those decisions. We do an annual salary and benefit report that we share well, we sell and talk about so people can know not only what's the average fair salary, but also what's my competition for health insurance, retirement, other benefits, vacation time, sick leave, those types of things. Because we've also seen a move, even fast-tracked more so since the pandemic, people are looking for what are some benefits that maybe make my employees want to stay or that I can attract. Um, We recently did a stay Survey with our staff, and we're exploring different options. Um, We're seeing some really innovative things out there that other nonprofits are implementing.
0: So, I want you to describe NAM, and I also want to just point out to listeners that it seems that more often than not, when you reference Nonprofit Association of the Midlands, rather than say all of that, it's pretty common that you say NAM. So, we may use NAM quite a lot in our conversation today. So, with that, describe the nonprofit association of the Midlands?
1: So we are a membership organization and we serve nonprofits of all sizes and missions across all of Nebraska and Southwest Iowa. So our membership is everything from soup to nuts, as I like to say. So our mission is we really are tasked with, we wanna strengthen the collective voice, leadership, and capacity of nonprofit organizations because it's those organizations that help to enrich the quality of life throughout our service area. So that's really what we do. We're part of a national network, the National Council of Nonprofits, and they can, there can only be one group like NAM in the state. There are a lot of what I call subsector organizations, which is the jargon. So, like in Lancaster County, they have a group called Cause Collective, which is for nonprofits in that area. We like to partner with them. Um, Buffalo County Partners out in the Kearney area, they may work with a subset of nonprofits, but we're the only statewide organization. And so we like to work with the subsector groups there. When we work in greater Nebraska, we always try to work with the local community foundation or United Way because we're all seeing a lot of the challenges and the problems are big enough to go around. And so we do lots of different work. We do lots of education and networking. We um, have some group purchasing and benefits. We have some leadership training programs, and we have some business partners that we work with. And so it's really, I like to say, our job is to make our job easier for our members. And so that's really what we try to do.
0: Given how you've described the large number of nonprofit members that you have, I'm curious to dive a little further into who are your members and are there any specific needs that perhaps different types of nonprofit have? And I'm wondering here a little bit if in some ways you've democratized what it is to be a nonprofit, because I could imagine that you're leveling the skill set and the competence and the capacity of a small nonprofit to be able to perform as effectively as the very big nonprofits that may be more commonly known to
1: us. You know, I think definitely. um, We try to do things that, like our employee benefits. You know, we have a retirement plan that's a pooled multiple employer plan that we created a dozen years ago when federal legislation was changing to make 403Bs more like 401Ks. Um, We work with a local ERISA attorney, Q Tech Rock. We have a plan sponsor, work with Benefit Plans Inc. and Nationwide, and we give the plan documents to our members. They get to decide if they can match or not yet match. We do an annual audit and it averages around $100 per year per employee. I mean, I say all the time, if we're going to attract smart people to the nonprofit sector, we better pay them enough to pay off their student loans, give them benefits and flexibility. And that's just one way that we're able to do that, that they wouldn't be able to afford that. Um, We did something similar a few years ago with an employee assistance plan that we've negotiated a flat rate for our members and then a low per person cost and... You know, we have lots of folks in there. Um, we do tons of training. So we do board training. We designed the program in partnership with lots of folks who work in this area. The Chamber, Leadership Omaha, Omaha Community Foundation, and created something called Board Masters because we learned unless you've been on a really good or a really bad nonprofit board, most people don't have a clue. And I think that's especially true in finance because most people don't have to worry about restricted and unrestricted funds or what. What are these things called grants and donations? We do nonprofit finance trainings to help people, employees, volunteers, or board members really understand how to create budgets, how to read financials, how to do forecasting and planning. Um, We do something similar in training with human resources. Human resources has always been a challenge. You know, it's always culture or compliance. And then you throw COVID and it is such a challenge. And so that's something that I think we're continuing to work at. We do. We have leadership programs. We have something called the Nonprofit Executive Institute. So think Leadership Omaha for nonprofits. We're just going to choose class 17 next week, I think, that'll start in January. And we started something called Rising Leader Institutes for those younger nonprofit professionals that have maybe worked in the sector a handful of years and say, yeah, I want to stay in this field. I want to make a difference every day. I mean, that's what I think people that work in our field, whether you're direct service or not, you feel like you get to make a difference every single day. Our signature program is something called Guidelines and Principles, and it is a free online assessment tool um, for any 501c3, whether they're a member or not, and it covers 12 areas of running your nonprofit business. So things like human resources, financial management, board governance, fundraising, fundraising information technology, and it's an online assessment tool, and you fill it out, and then it sends you a report in each of those 12 areas with things broken down by legal compliance, which you want to fix fast, what's recommended, what's strongly recommended. I really see that as a roadmap. You know, I'm here. I know I want to grow. What laws are going to apply to me when I have 20 employees that don't apply to me when I have 15? Um, How many board members must I have by state law? Those types of things. It's interesting, guidelines and principles actually came about as a result of Sarbanes-Oxley from the Great Recession. And that was when our friend across the river, Senator Grassley, was chair of Senate Finance, and he sees nonprofits as all the same. So our nine-member organization would be viewed as the thousands of organizations that work at CHI. And so the National Council and others quickly realized we need to figure out a way for nonprofits to be transparent and govern and be accountable ourselves or government would do us for would do it for us. And so that's why we became the 17th state to implement the guidelines and principles. Uh, we're unique in that we created a companion Wikipedia. So as people are filling it out, they can go to the Department of Revenue and research, hey, I'm having a fundraiser. What rules do I need to apply? Do I have to pay taxes on these things? The answer is probably yes. Um, We actually did that because we were, were a small staff and we figured we can refer people there as opposed to our phone ringing quite a bit. We created, right before the pandemic, an executive transition toolkit that we sell very cheaply to our members. And it's a series of worksheets for any type of leadership transition for the board to do. Maybe it's board transitions or senior management. And that's been really, really helpful. We have a career center where our members can post their jobs for free No surprise, it's the number one visited place on our website. The workforce shortage is very real in nonprofits, just as it is in all other areas of the economy. And then not yet members can post it for around $100. We do lots of community information. So uh, I mentioned we do an annual salary and benefit report, the economic impact report. We have a national economic impact report of nonprofits. We can connect you with different insurance providers. We have business sponsors, Um, So we do a lot. There's a lot of bang for our buck. We do two big conferences every year. Our largest summit, Nonprofit Summit of the Midlands, is November 2nd um, out at the La Vista Conference Center. This will be the second year that it's in person since the pandemic. So we're hopeful to get back up to, you know, around 400 people there for a full day of professional development. We also do one in the spring out in Kearney, the Central Nebraska Nonprofit Conference. We partner with the uh, Greater Grand Island Community Foundation, the Kearney Area Community Foundations, Hastings Community Foundations, Hamilton Foundation, and uh, Merrill County Foundations to do that. And we have are about 200 out there. And so we look forward to doing those trainings as a lot of different trainings that our members need.
0: It probably won't surprise listeners then when it seems that there is to hear that there's an increasing movement uh, amongst people involved with non-profits, or funders, or those perhaps involved in regulating the nonprofit landscape, that NAM itself compliance with NAM's guidelines and suggestions and principles is itself becoming a seal, a, you know, a good approval seal, as it were. Is that something that you recognise and, and perhaps are, are leaning into? You you are uh, offering credibility uh, to your non-profits.
1: So. It's not a question of the work nonprofits do, it's how they do it. Do they have the business acumen? And so we are leaning into it to the degree that since the guidelines and principles is free for any 501c3, for our members that participate and they resolve board resolution, the easiest way for them to do it, that they are following the guidelines and principles as it makes sense for them, because it's going to be different if you're a volunteer, if you have 10 people, 20 people, 2,000 people. It's going to be different along those lines. Then we give them best practice seal of approval, which is kind of like the good housekeeping seal. Um, But we're also very careful. We do not want to be the nonprofit police. Um, That's not our job. That's not our role. We really just want to help educate and advocacy. Advocacy is something we've really been able to grow our presence in and public policy, which we think all nonprofits not only can advocate and educate, they really need to. A
0: past Board chair of NAM went public with the challenge around you assuming the position. There was a vacancy that emerged on NAM, and it was pretty courageous and pretty vulnerable. But I also think really, really demonstrated the mission and the integrity of NAM. If it's going to guide other nonprofits, then you really had to step out and explain that we too are transparent and live by these principles. So this is a hard conversation, but but would you explain how it was that the vacancy arose that you filled?
1: And we made that into a story that I like to call how I got my job. So I was on the NAM board. I think I'd been to one meeting. I joke I was on the board for 10 minutes and hadn't even had board orientation. And I got a call. I, I remember it really well. It was dark. I was leaving Hy-Vee. Cold, I think it was January. And I get a call from somebody on the executive committee that we're colleagues and friends, but why is she calling me you know at eight o'clock at night and just said, hey, we have to had to put this person on leave. We're having an emergency board meeting. Let me remind you of your duty as a board member. Let me remind you at this point, our board president refer all questions to this this person. And so it's like, okay, thank you. And you walked into a board meeting. And there's an accountant, an attorney, and a PR firm in there. You're like, well, this is going to be interesting. And at that point, they couldn't tell us the allegation. It was just pending criminal charges. And so, which meant that the board had to really trust the executive committee because they had been contacted by what turned out to be another nonprofit who actually was a NAM member that um, my predecessor was accused and convicted of embezzling money from, which, one, rotate your board treasurers. And so we made the decision to really, we, we turned it into a case study. So it's not so much about the situation, it's how should the board respond. Anytime, you should have a crisis communication plan. Whether somebody steals from your organization, whether there's some type of incident, always be ready to respond. Always be willing to press charges. I mean, I've seen around like some nonprofits Someone will steal five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars seems to be this weird magic number, and they don't press charges. And I'm thinking to myself, what if they go on and do that to the next business or nonprofit? Where's the liability? One, it's not enough to ruin your life over. As I referenced, I have way too much guilt after sixteen years of Catholic education. But it's also the right thing to do. And what we found after we turned that into a case study, I was invited to go out to different places across greater Nebraska where they'd had these incidences. And so I think it's, one, it's easier to point the finger at yourself and tell the story of this is what action the board should take. And here are some steps you can take to ensure this doesn't happen again. Unfortunately, fraud is as normal in nonprofits as it is in all other areas. It's all about the culture that you create, I think is really important. The internal controls that you have you know, how that's perceived and just really helping people understand this is how you can do it and do it well. And, and teach your board and teach your staff and volunteers. Um, I remember something similar happened at a, an organization in Grand Island a few years after that. And uh, they were looking for a new person to take that. And a colleague of mine had applied for the job and a board member called and did a reference check. And I made a point of saying, you know, gave the reference and then said, I want to thank you for pressing charges and being so public when you had this embezzlement issue in your organization. Because it's not easy. I think it's harder in smaller communities than large because it's so public. But I think it's really what needs to happen. And it also sets the tone that this will not be ha- tolerated. I've heard you say
0: before that we need to get comfortable having uncomfortable conversations. So clearly, you're demonstrating that now, but would you expand on that? What do you mean by getting uncomfortable with these uncomfortable conversations?
1: Well, I think it goes back to, we need to have uncomfortable conversations with our boards. We encourage our members to do scenario planning, whether it's what happened if we didn't get a grant, what changes are we gonna have to make? What happens if we know that in six months we may not be able to meet payroll? What happens if we're waiting on a payment from state government and it's delayed? What are our options there? We've been doing scenario planning in our organization on refining our public policy agenda. This last session at the Unicameral, there was a lot of, it was was just a really different session. It's next session's not gonna be any easier, I don't think. So let's get really clear. Let's help our board and our members understand what is our public policy agenda. How are we going to take positions on issues? How are we going to communicate that? I think those types of things. It's, it's funny. It wasn't until the pandemic, before the pandemic, um, I also taught yoga for like 15 years. And I would always say a lot when I was teaching, sometimes you have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Uncom- and I'm thinking camel pose or something. And it wasn't until the pandemic, I'm like, oh, I've been saying this for a long time. I need to practice it in my day job. We're now seeing those uncomfortable conversations as we're all trying to figure out what is our work in diversity, equity, and inclusion. You know, we've been hosting the Racial Equity Institute for two years now. Um, we'll do it again next year. And how can people have those conversations? And then how can we figure out what's next? There's so much we have to unpack there and, and really make it so our community really understands our history. I mean, you can't know where you're going if you don't know where you've been. And so I think that's one thing that we all really need to focus on. Your
0: organization, Nam, is supporting a variety of its members, some of whom maybe have missions that don't necessarily align with each other. But you talked about these tough issues, and I'm curious how you are helping those nonprofits navigate tough conversations, whether they relate, for example, to DEI issues that you've just mentioned, given the state of uh, affirmative action uh, and Supreme Court rulings uh, in in the recent past here. Also, for example, uh, attacks on the rights of those that identify as LGBTQ and gender non-binary and a host of other difficulties where uh, you have organizations that you have as members doing some kind of direct service in fields where these kinds of conversations are extremely difficult and being challenged at every turn. So how how do you support them in having those kind of
1: difficult engagements and tough conversations? You know, we do that in a couple of different ways. We have, uh, for members only, we have a CEO and an HR listserv that they communicate regularly. And then we get together once a month on Zoom. And that's something that we think it transferred very well to Zoom because I get to see faith in the panhandle every month that I never would before. And so we that's where we have these types of conversations. They're really like, okay, I'm wrestling with this issue or do you know a really good DEI trainer or who can look at my, po- my handbook and policy and procedures and how do we weave this through the entire handbook? And it's more than just your equal opportunity. Those are some of the ways we're doing it. By also giving them, by having conversations there, then they're equipped to go to their board and say, we should have this conversation perhaps be part of our strategic plan or board retreat, and we probably should get a trained facilitator to do that, who can kind of balance things. We've had more and more of our members say, how do I create a public policy agenda? So then it's really clear what they've been given permission to go after and do and where their board doesn't want to go. I mean, being a membership organization with 800 members, of course we have members that disagree. Um, Our members do not vote on our public policy agenda because with 800 members, how how could you? Um, Our policy agenda is really federal issues, a handful of federal issues, and then Nebraska-specific issues. While we do survive, we we just don't have the capacity to, to go that way. And, you know, we think about what belongs to the entire sector. And what are those things that bubble up? So, for example, this last session, um, we've been tracking where are all the American Rescue uh, Relief Plans fund going. And we're really pleased that the funds, that the governor's veto was overridden for, for the auditor to have funds to really make sure where we state agencies spending that money correctly because we don't want to send that money back. That needs to be reallocated. So that'll be interesting to see. We also took positions against two Alleged donor privacy bills—they're being brought in by national groups. They're solutions looking for problems that really don't exist in our state. We also signed onto a letter that encouraged senators to vote against the anti-trans legislation. We looked at it as a workforce issue. I mean, that's that's the only reason we took a position on it because it's not any of our personal opinions, whether you're staff, board, or members but we see that as a workforce issue. And we did a lot of surveys during ARPA and the five top issues that came up from our members were early childhood, health, housing, healthcare, behavioral and physical and workforce. You know, Nebraska, we're, we're a gray state. We have to figure out how to keep our people here, attract people here and really grow. And that was hard. We had a few members that were really upset. We had a few members. We had other members that were really grateful. Um, I had one board member that resigned. Our board had difficult conversations. We had to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. So that's how we're doing it.
0: You shared that you've had an interesting career path in a variety of fields leading up to you taking the position as CEO of, of NAM. What did you learn from those experiences, for example, working on political campaigns, working. Or different government institutions. What are some things that you took away from those experiences that, that have helped shape who you are and how you handle being the leader of NAM?
1: So it's interesting. I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up, but I am fortunate in that all of my, my path on this career has really helped prepare me for the next level. And so, you know, I mentioned I, I worked on campaigns for a while. Um, through, well, I guess a little bit even after college, even when some of them, when my kids were younger to help them experience, you know what? You're five years old, you can still go knock on doors. You can still carry the flyers. You can do those things. And then I've always been a registered independent because I, I don't like where the R's and the D's get into conflict. I don't need that in my life. I sure don't need that on my board. I also have worked for both Republicans and Democrats. And so my first job out of graduate school was I worked at the Omaha mayor's office for a series of mayors. And that was really eye-opening to see how different personalities handled it differently, how maybe somebody who had been a great city council member where I had interned in grad school had a difficult transition to the executive level. That was very eye-opening for me. How somebody with a business background, but who had a public interest attitude could really make that work. Um, and that was interesting, and I worked for several mayors, and I ended up, at my last position there was as the grant writer, and you serve at the pleasure. And so I left when one of the mayors came in and didn't want anybody anymore, and that was probably one of the best things that happened in my career, because I had been working on grants, primarily criminal justice grants for the police department and so on, and we had been working with the U.S. Attorney's Office, and they offered me a job. And so I went over there as a law enforcement coordinator. And basically that entailed of working with cops of all levels, local, state and federal to get them to work and play well together and community groups across the state, primarily on drug and violence issues and getting them resources to deal with like when the meth epidemic started coming into Nebraska, which was the first drug that came from the West Coast to the East that came from rural to urban. And so it was a whole different animal and come up with innovative solutions on how we could not just I think the war on drugs will be one around kitchen tables and not just law enforcement. But we were able to do creative things like buying small police and sheriff's offices the equipment that they couldn't afford by not just going into meth houses, but let's bring child protective services in to, and test the blood of these kids and make sure that the, the family that they're going to are, are good as well. So it's really trying a holistic approach. You know, I got to help start drug courts in Nebraska, which was just fascinating, you know, and to help con- convey the message they're not soft on crime, they're smart on crime. You know, if you can save taxpayers money, have babies born drug-free, like how many millions would that save and NICU cost, get people back employed and being taxpayers. Um, so that was really a lot of fun. And I wrote grants not only for the US attorney's office itself, but for law enforcement across the state and criminal justice. And I'm really proud of a lot of the prevention work that that we were able to do, as well as as of course getting resources to where they needed to be.
0: I'm not sure if you see yourself like this, but I think the truth is objectively that you are seen as a leader in our community. And I don't know how that resonates with you, how, how you feel about that.
1: You know, I think to some degree it feels strange. Um, Maybe it's that imposter syndrome that I think all of us have to some degree or another, maybe it, cause now I have to admit that I'm a grown-up. up I, I don't know. But I've always been fortunate that I've been able to have jobs that I've enjoyed and have been put into positions where I can make decisions that I don't have to go back and ask my boss, which I hope I'm now empowering, doing that to empower my team. Um, That was one of my biggest frustrations in government. You would have meetings, you're ready to make a decision, and they're like, oh, I have to go ask the chief or I have to go ask so-and-so this department head. And I finally implemented a rule that said, we're making a decision, either have the authority or bring the decision maker with you because a decision will will be made. Because the other thing that um, the US Attorney's Office did for the Justice Department is if they were having trouble with a grantee, then I was usually the person in the office to send in and go help them fix it, which was a lot of fun. But then I could also help them work and play well together.
0: I'm circling back to that quote of yours that we shared at the beginning that, um, you're a child of the seventies and you wanted to change the world. Does that still ring true? And do you feel like you're fulfilling that? Maybe it seemed like a dream at the time, but really seen now seems like a worthy aspiration. So do you feel that you are living into that?
1: You know, I do. I mean, maybe not as much as I wish or thought I could, you know, when I was a bright, starry-eyed young person. But a lot of the programs that I was involved with continue. Drug courts continued, have kind of it expanded to different specialty courts, you know, veterans courts and whatnot. So that concept. A lot of the viol- gun violence prevention programs exist in different forms across the country. A lot of the streamlining of grants and building relationships between nonprofits and foundations that continues. I think a lot of the collaborations and more importantly, the awareness that it's okay to have collaborations, that continues. And you know, as I tell my kids, you got to go to work every day. Find something you love to do, because we've all had jobs that we dread, which in some way I think is good because it motivates you to keep on going. And I wake up excited to go to work every day. Um, I've been at my job for 15 years, and I'm not bored. There's still so much potential to help nonprofits, to help their clients, which is to help each other. It's fun. I'm having a lot of fun.
0: My guest today has been Anne Hindry, CEO of the Nonprofit Association of the Midlands. Anne, thanks so much for sharing your time with us today.
1: Thank you for this opportunity, Stuart. I've really enjoyed our conversation.
0: Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well.